Hello and welcome to Unseen Being, our monthly show where we talk to artists, scientists and each other about what the hell is happening inside our brains and bodies when we experience the world around us. We explore some of the intangible and overlooked experiences that contribute to the way we feel. What happens at the center of our experiences when we listen to music, walk in nature, sit on our phones, make morning coffees, zone out and get into the flow, or simply dance around the room. All of these tiny micro experiences contribute to the way we feel, act and behave. So in this podcast, we take you on a mini journey of self-discovery, exploration, feed your curiosity about some of the most overlooked yet instrumental elements that contribute to your well-being. Consider this an audio handbook curated by artists, scientists, philosophers and technologists, a critical guide to understanding the well-being of experience in the current age. We bring you the latest in scientific discoveries but cut the academic jargon and help enhance your understanding of the way everyday experiences impact you and potentially an understanding of some of the tiny changes you can make to improve the way you feel. We are Robin and Catherine and together we're the founders of Kinder Studios, a creative science studio that explores the aesthetics of human experience. We look at the neuroscience of art's impact on well-being and human connection and believe that connection to self, others, and the environment is fundamental to human experience. Welcome to today's show, where our focus is all about embodiment. But what is embodiment really? We find this word is getting used more and more frequently, but it actually is quite confusing to a lot of people. So let's just start off with some clarification at the top of today's show. To me, embodiment is being in one's body. It's about feeling the sensations within. It's about being connected to your wider system. We often think of the body as this feeling of the intangible, but actually the body is this physical form that's actually a lot more tangible than the mind. And so the more we can root into our body through a variety of practices, you know, this body provides a new perspective on living and right now the body is actually quite a hot topic, so I might even call it trendy, but the emergence of embodiment actually came from a response of a lot of technical and scientific changes and social movements like the women's movement, environmentalism, and religious fundamentalism. A lot of people these days spending so much time in front of a screen are detached from their bodies. Actually, there's a word that we like to use in the studio here called screen apnea. It's when we spend so much time in front of our screens, we actually disconnect from our bodies and actually stop breathing for brief moments of time as if people with sleep apnea would do. So it's really important for us to step back into our body. So today we're going to be exploring some of the ways to do so and some of the ways you may have not thought of before. It's not all just about movement and dance. There are so many ways of doing that. You know, it's tapping into body parts, even as simple as just moving your finger, you know, and noticing what that finger feels like, or just even noticing maybe your jaw is tight. It's about 
being in presence with yourself and really understanding what's going on in your own system. And to me, that's really what I think about when I think about embodiment. What does embodiment mean to you, Catherine? Uh, It's a good question because it's something that actually really used to confuse me, mainly because I I grew up in an environment and, and a place where it was all about the mind. And in a way, I wasn't even aware I had a body. So I was really interested when science started to to come up with this term, embodiment and embodied cognition. And that's this theory that actually many features of cognition or of our mind, whether human or otherwise, are shaped by aspects of the entire body. And actually, if you think about it, that kind of does make sense, right? Because there is definitely something going on in our heads informed by our body. Like how many times do we say something doesn't feel right or we have a bad feeling about something? We don't say that doesn't think right, do we? You know, our body is the interface with which we navigate the world and the brain interprets that. And think about, for example, when you, you know, are unsure about something, you actually feel queasy. They've done this interesting study to show that that when you have ginger and ginger stops you feeling nauseous, that if you're disgusted by something, if you've just eaten a ginger tablet, which will stop feeling nausea, you don't think that you're so disgusted by something because you don't have that feeling of queasiness. Mm. You know, it's a really interesting way of, of looking at how we interpret the world. You know, I I was very mind strong. And there was a drama school exploring physical theatre that I really had to explore this idea of presence. Uh, and it's an interesting idea when we talk about being present, are we referring to uh, being in our bodies or does presence exist in the mind as well? I think it's an interesting question to say, does presence only exist when you're embodied? And I think ultimately the head just gets in the way a lot of the time because there's so much mental chatter that actually becomes hard to listen to anything else, including your body. And I think often the easiest way to get into a state of presence is through the body. So, you know, have you ever had an experience where, you know, you didn't realize till after it was done that you weren't actually thinking about anything? you know, when you were doing it. And maybe sometimes people would call that a flow state. It's about being aware. And I guess ultimately the the goal here is to be able to have presence in both the body and mind. And I think that's really what embodiment means today. (laughs) But we spoke with some amazing guests today about this topic who provided some really broad perspective. So let's introduce a couple of them to you now. Jane Peake is a dance practitioner working at King's College, who most recently has been supporting creative research methods and creative teaching to better support health and well-being, especially with all of the students now sitting in front of screens all day. And we also have Leanne Hammercott. So she's head of cultural programming at King's College London with a background in in dance, body and technology. Um, And she works with the incredible organization Body Data Space who explore how data and space interact with art and design, and they create those connections between performance, virtual worlds, and media technologies, which is really interesting because we're talking about embodiment, but as we become more digital, what's happening to our sense of embodiment? And this is what Leanne explores, placing the body at the centre of the digital interaction. So we asked what embodiment meant to them. Yes, so hi, I'm Leanne Hammercott. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess my understanding of embodiment, um, essentially that we're using our own bodies to understand our experiences and our emotional experiences of the the world around us, that the 
body and mind are not only connected, but that the body influences the mind and vice versa, that uh, we store memories and emotions, feelings, experiences within our bodies. And I think as humans, we all connect differently with how to achieve embodiment. So for me, that might be going and having a doing a dance class or some dancing and some breath work, whereas for others, it's a sort of maybe it's your relationship with yourself and others um, or sort of spiritual connections and beliefs. Um, but essentially sort of using sensations of our bodies to develop awareness, uh, be present, find balance, feel connected, feel love and be empowered. So I'm Jane Peake. Yeah, so similar to Leanne, really, I think it's it's letting myself feel rather than think first and let the experience lead and almost try really hard, actually, not to be in my head um, and to feel what's going on, not only in my emotions, but physically, what I sense, um, the breath. I think a key element of me being embodied has come through the practice of contact improvisation, which is a very specific practice which teaches not only for you to be centered and grounded and um, be aware of yourself, but also then how you then place yourself and position yourself in relationship to other people. So I think for me, embodiment is also about how we place and position ourselves with other people. And for me, I have a sense of myself in context with others and for me it's very much about that relationship not only me on my own but how then I respond to other people. So for those who don't know, as Jane was discussing, contact improv is a movement-based practice that involves exploring your body in relationship to others, using things like touch, sharing weight, and movement awareness. It really takes complete presence with another person. And it's really interesting to regard embodiment from this relational view with other people. So we'll talk about that more later in the show. But... For now, let's kind of go back to the basics of the body. You know, we move through the world with our bodies every day. As humans, we're these sensorial beings. You know, all of our senses are through our body part. But ultimately, the brain is trapped behind the skull. You know, the brain doesn't engage in the world around us. It actually receives messages from the body. So we make all these decisions based on our head, but we discount the role the body takes in literally absorbing all of the information we have coming around us at all times. You know, we even know this, that for example, in multi-sensory learning environments that tap into more than one sensitive time that gets us into our bodies, whether we know it's happening or not, are a lot more impactful in kind of learning and comprehension of new ideas and systems. And ultimately, we need to really remember that the body and the brain are one connected system. 
they're constantly communicating with another, one another. So ultimately the brain receives messages from the sensorial world around us through our body, you know, through the spinal cord and the nervous system. And this connects to our brainstem and our midbrain, the parts of our brain that are much more primal in their evolutionary nature than, for example, the prefrontal cortex, which is all about thinking, cognition, comprehension. That's a relatively more recent part of our evolutionary history. So the body is, you know, this really primal nature of being. And let's just not discount the intelligence that it holds and the role that it plays at actually bringing messages back up to our brain in the circular system and the way it works. interesting because it's almost reversing the the patterns that we've learned so when we're children we do this automatically we are holistic where everything's kind of integrated we receive information through all senses in our bodies and um it's almost somehow then we lose that connection as we enter the education system and whatever that might be that then separates things out and says, well, this is this and this is this category. And actually we are, I think, innately those kind of holistic beings. So it's almost, when I think of embodiment, I think about um, unlearning patterns and almost a kind of rewiring, going back to how we used to move, to how we used to sense how we acquired knowledge through the body, the intelligence that that we had as we were developing as children, that that all formed our identity and how we acquired information. You know, it's a good point that that, that Jane makes about that lost connection and, and what Robin mentioned before. We've really... We have lost this connection between mind and body. Uh, and in a way, we're recovering sort of from dualism, this idea that, that started with Descartes, where, where the mind and the body got separated. And I do remember distinctly the first day I did a movement class at drama school and I'd, I'd been very academic, I'd been a scientist, I'd come from the labs. We had to lie on the ground and, and our movement teacher said to us, where is your body today? And I was like, well, that's a good fucking point because I have no idea. <laughs> I was like, you can feel your body. And it was such an alien concept, you know. And, and, and you know, for hundreds of years, we, we have in the West separated those two things. Um, and, and it doesn't make sense because we, we do sense the world with our bodies. We interact with it every moment physically. Um, every thought and emotion has a sort of corresponding physical reaction through the nervous system. They're in constant interplay. You know, it's something that we often talk about in the studio, Rob and I, this idea of the, the body-mind link. Yeah, and actually the word we like to play with a lot is this is the body brain. You know, as Catherine mentioned before, and we'll talk about shortly again, is is this cog- cognition within your body. And we have to remember that the brain actually physically lives in the body via our nervous system. You know, the nervous system lives in our brains and our spinal cords, and it's how we receive information from the world around us. So let's just keep this concept of the body brain with us for the rest of the show. And it's probably a really good time to introduce our 
our next guest, Dr. Vittorio Galesi. Yes, so he's a cognitive neuroscientist based in Parma University in Italy. He's actually been a thought leader in research on the brain in sort of the last 40 years. He was the first person to discover something called mirror neurons, which is an amazing thing that happens sometimes when you see people move, the corresponding parts of your brain light up as well. So when you see a dancer, it's almost like your brain is dancing with them. But he also is a leader in aesthetic experience in the brain. But he will explain all of this. In the last 20 years, I, I moved uh, to address uh, issues concerning our social nature, intersubjectivity, studying the human brain and the human body. And among uh, the, the topic that I, I address, there is aesthetic, experimental aesthetics. Why aesthetics? Uh, because if the goal of cognitive neuroscience is to shed light from its own particular vantage point on what, what does it mean to be a human being, uh, I think that meaning-making, cultural artifacts, what we now designate as art, creativity, are the trademark of our species. And therefore, it, it is not only legitimate uh, as an object of study uh, for neuroscience, but I think neuroscience must address those issues. We learned that it is impossible to come to terms with our nature if you leave uh, the body out of your idea about what, what does it mean to, uh, for example, to, cre to, create, uh, to create art. So the body is essential for the possibility to experience anything. But at the same time, the aesthetic discourse is mainly, if not entirely, logocentric. So language, thought, Cognition is is the key is the key player in aesthetic discourse. So emotions, the body, are peripheral or totally irrelevant. It's a, it's a good point that Gillespie brings up about sort of language and the place of language in all of this. Now, of course, there's things that that we can't explain the limitations of language, but we intuitively feel. And of course, you know, within different cultures, there are different words for things around the body which don't translate as well. But we do use language as a way of describing things uh, that happen sort of physically uh, or use metaphors of the body to describe things around us. We subconsciously use all these metaphors about the body to sort of how we think and feel our way through the world. As Chomsky points out, in fact, the human body has been a persistent and prominent source of metaphors for social and political relations throughout human history. You know, various parts of the body have conveniently represented sort of different social functions. I mean, for example, we refer to things like the head of state. Or even something like that was, I'm in over my head, or I'm up to my eyeballs in something. None of us realize that this is actually embedded in so much of our language structure for all of this time. Or, or when you feel, you know, when you say I'm heartbroken, like these are all things that we intuitively say, but I don't know if we actually have really thought about before how this is really the foundation of where embodied cognition started from. Yeah, absolutely. And and it shows, you know, that's it evolved at the same time we evolved and the same time we evolved language. You know, and, and like we said, this Descartian sort of split is something that's relatively recent, the last couple of hundred years. You know, we see it as well in the way we use our body. You know, think about all the rituals around bodies. So handshakes, for example, or salutes as a way of showing respect and power. 
the way we, for example, cover our bodies from sort of hijabs to, to rituals of removing hats in churches or even things like monks shaving their heads to be closer to God. Our body has this language of its own, which may not be spoken about, uh, but it's widely recognised and understood within cultures. And it's really interesting to see what happens, you know, when we, when we take away words and, and we express through the viscera. Yeah, there's things that we can't discount, that we can't really explain or justify in words. And just because we can't explain it in this tangible language-based form doesn't mean that it's not hugely important. And I think that if we do leave those out, we're really leaving out this entire part of the human experience. You know, we view the world through our eyes, but we actually feel a lot more with our senses. And it's interesting to explore what happens when we remove the eyes. For the majority of the population, eyes are the dominant sense, but what happens when we remove this dominance? Galassi tells us a little bit more about visual dominance and the need to move away from the eyes alone. I think that one interesting point coming out from, from our research and the research of other colleagues, uh, the challenge to what I have jokingly uh, designate as visual imperialism. So in other words, we see because there is a, a part of our brain which is specifically dedicated to be dealing with visual information, period. I think this idea is, is totally wrong. When we lay our eyes onto something, we activate the, the visual part of the brain, the tactile part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain, and the motor part of the brain. So if I behold the slashes on a canvas made in the 50s of last century by an artist named Lucio Fontana, uh, I not only activate uh, the visual part of, of my brain, but uh, even if in the absence of any overt movement on the side of the beholder, in his brain there is a motor simulation of the gesture that uh, uh, produced uh, those cuts in the canvas. So as Galesi explained, there's a lot more happening beyond our eyes when we see. It's something called motor simulation. When you're looking at something, even just looking at an image before you're even making a judgment about it, you go past the eyes and your brain starts to actually imagine what it would be like in that experience. And this is linked back to kind of the mirror neurons that Catherine explained earlier. So your brain is actually able to simulate that same experience as if you were doing it yourself. So although your eyes are this viewer of the world, there is so much more going on past your eyes in your body. So this is, for example, you can say when you see an apple sitting on a table or even better, an apple that has a bite out of it. When you see that apple, your brain actually starts to register as if what would happen if you ate that apple yourself. And I think if you even pay enough attention, you'd be able to see that you might even start tasting what that apple tastes like. So when we're thinking about language or vision, the primary ways in which we communicate in the world, we really can't leave out the body because it's always in combination with everything else. It's never one thing happening at a time. And we know, especially through science, that one of the most fundamental parts of experience is the meaning that we attribute to something. It's this meaning making that really makes something transformative, impactful, memorable, emotional for ourselves. And without that, we really discount the human experience and the way that we live in the world. I couldn't agree more. I think when you think of, of human beings, 
you know, the way we interact with each other is through our bodies. You know, think how do you connect with people? It's not it's not really through talking, it's through through physical touch. It's through shared physical experiences. I mean, the irony is that we only actually are able to access 1% of the audio and visual sort of spectrum around us. But it's incredibly important to our shared experience of the world. So the shared experience of the world, you know, with ourselves and others is really fundamental to living. And it's that lived experience, you know, this concept of phenomenology, which is introduced in the 1940s by Maurice Merleau-Ponty, which basically says we move through our world with our bodies and that really creates our experience of it. And if we're not actually living it, if we're not doing it, we can't understand it. And so we actually learn to come to understand things through our bodies. And Jane and Leanne shared a little bit more with us about meaning making to them. We create meaning all the time, don't we, whether we are aware of it or not. And our bodies are, um, we are creative beings. And I think that it's interesting to think about how we articulate that and how we help other people access the creativity that is already inherent and one of the things that we've been exploring is how we articulate how we learn and how we enable other people to have a toolkit available to them of how to express something that is going on for them so it might be drawing so self-figure drawing so a sensation that you feel then is translated into something that you then can see. Um, it could be through a photograph. And so it's how those mediums also connect and how we then draw out maybe something that we don't see into something that is a more seen. And perhaps that will help some people have a feel a connection between what is going on that we don't see to having then something that is expressed in a different way. Um, so in a way for me, it's also about articulating and giving access and tools for people to understand and access how their body is creating. I really like what Jane says about this need to sort of develop tools to articulate these things. Something again we talk a lot about in the studio, something I've learned on my own personal journey. I'm someone who never had an emotional vocabulary. I was just never taught one. And when I started to develop one, what I realized is that it was sort of inseparable from physical feelings as well. You know, being me, I wanted to all be in the mind. But then when I realized, when I started to understand emotions, I realized they were completely interwoven with the body. I mean, if you think about it, we've all had that problem where you've had to have a difficult conversation and your your voice actually closes up. It's really strange, but it's a, it's a physical reaction. Yeah, or the ball you get in the throat when you're just like about to cry, like, what is that ball in the throat? Yeah, it's, it's awful. crazy, but it does stop you from speaking. Absolutely. It completely interacts with your intention. I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, you have things like, you know, just the phrase falling in love. Now, I don't know if you've ever fallen in love, but it's a bit like taking a really dodgy pill in a club. Like You get this sensation in your stomach, like you're falling off a cliff. You get a rush, you know, because your brain is full of chemicals and your body's full of chemicals. You get this rushing sensation around your heart. I mean, the other tragic thing that happens is, is being heartbroken, just that phrase itself. And they've proven now that it's a physical pain that you feel, the parts of the brain when you're heartbroken that relate to 
feeling pain around your heart actually light up. It's a real thing. So our experience of the world is both emotional, but it's also physical, which is why I really like this research. You know, this, this need to seek reality from individuals' narrative of actual felt experience to produce this sort of in-depth and, and more holistic scientific idea of, of what it means to have a body and mind that are completely interwoven. From a sort of performing arts or dance background, the you know the body, the body is is at the center. And when we're thinking about creating meaningful experiences, there has to be a central character or identity or, or body, you know, replacing ourselves and our bodies at the center, which is what makes an experience meaningful. I was also thinking about some of the research coming out of King's, so sort of phenomenological research where lived experience, a lot around lived experience um, or choices of a person and the knowledge that they gain through these experiences and choices. King's is very much looking at that sort of how, how, how can we help patients communicate their lived experience through the arts, for example, and, and how artists and scientists and clinicians are therefore then learning better understanding through that of, of, of some of the meanings of that. So I think that, that whole area of, of the lived experience is, is, is really, really key. You know, she's exactly right. That lived experience is really, really key because there has in the past been a divide between science, the lived experience and, and the studying of the human condition, which is crazy, really, because lab work absolutely and lab experiments are great and really important to work out the mechanisms um, of how things work in the brain. But it can be dangerously reductive. You know, if you think about it, you know, Otherwise, if, if you just study humans in, in lab experiments, it's like studying an animal in a zoo. You need to understand how they interact and how they experience the world in the real world. And this is what we do at Kinder Studios, actually, and what Gillespie is doing in a lot of his work. Yeah, it's about the intersection of the evidence-based science and the felt experience, because obviously we know that science can only go so far, because ultimately it's through the body, it's through this experience that we receive messages and create that meaning we spoke of before. And the more you can really start to listen to the messages that we get, you know, it's this innate knowing that sometimes, as we said before, you can't explain in words, but it's a feeling, it's a sensation. You know, everybody has had the sensation of being nervous. Your heart might start racing and then that tells your brain that you might be nervous or you might be anxious or you might be excited. Emotions are actually produced in our bodies first and then they translate into a feeling. That's our perception of that emotion. And that perception, that feeling is all based on our past experiences. So if you're going to be having a fast, if, if you have a fast heartbeat and previously, every time you've had a fast heartbeat, it means you're anxious, then your brain will probably see that as anxiety. And this is really connected to embodied cognition that Catherine spoke about before, that our cognition is influenced or perhaps actually determined by our experiences in the physical world. And just to remind you again, our bodies are the physical form in which we inhabit the world, in which we move through the world. And so the emotions that are created in our body actually have a huge importance on our decision-making, our actions, and the way we move through the world. There's actually a scientific theory called the somatic marker hypothesis, which actually shows that the emotions you feel in your soma, 
in your body are driving our decisions and our actions in the world. And I think for a lot of people for a long time, we've been told, don't be emotional. Don't, you know, especially in the workplace, don't let your emotions get in the way. And sure, there is a place and time for that. But when we shut ourselves off from these emotions, which ultimately are messages from our body communicating something to our rational mind, we're actually shutting off a whole intelligence system. And that's connected with what Catherine said about embodied cognition. So whether we like it or not, our emotions guide our decision-making. A lot of people just didn't learn this and things are often separated. I could not agree more. In fact, there's amazing studies to show that if, if um, you disable the part of the brain which, which senses emotion, so you don't let people sense emotions, they can't make any decision, not even sort of what to have for breakfast. You know, like the mind-body split, we've also seen to have split emotions and, and rational thinking, which is not the t- at all. We need our emotions and our, you know, emotions are called feelings for a reason because they're, they're felt, they're felt in the body as well. Um, and we need them to navigate the world. And it's interesting that at the moment, you know, we've had much, many of our senses sort of limited. Someone pointed out to us the other day, we've been living in a two-dimensional world during the pi- pandemic and we're about to go back in into that multi-sensory world. And what always strikes me is that, you know, we need to be more sure of our ability to navigate the world through our bodies rather than just our minds. Because our body senses hundreds of thousands of bits of information, most of which don't get through to our conscious thought. We filter a lot of it out, but the body can still respond to it. You know, we really need to learn, especially in the West, how to trust our bodies and what it's telling us. Just thinking about the student experience now, so um, one of the things that we're experimenting with is actually how we can bring what would normally be put to the side as that's creative stuff into the core curriculum. So we're not separating out movement, creative expression, whatever that might be, as a separate experience, but we're actually trying to integrate, like we were talking about earlier, there's this integration that we are minds and university is very much about your mind and intellect and everyone is very much in this place of cerebral thinking acquiring knowledge through reading through exchanging dialogue so how do we give people an experience of oh your body can also acquire knowledge your body can understand and actually i think in this environment because people are so fed up of being on the screen and being floating heads and that noticing, oh, my body doesn't feel right. Like I'm aching. And so for me, that feels like there's, a, there's an opportunity here uh, where we can actually try some things out and get people to think, oh yeah, actually this, my body is really important. And I noticed that because I've been sitting in front of a screen for seven hours. But even like you say, just listening to your body, just being able to, you know, we understand sort of bodies of knowledge, but actually it's when we're thinking about, you know, our own body knowledge and actually for students or, you know, for for anyone, it's kind of thinking about that moment that we start to tap into our own, our own bodies and listen to our own bodies and be able to read our own bodies. We know now that sort of that interoceptive signs which a signal if you realize that you're hungry or if you suddenly realize that you, you need to do something to be able to perform or to be able to to do something better and listen to your body listen to your gut instinct you know that sort of 
whole area around the gut and how we listen to that in terms of making decisions about making some of that more visible. I absolutely love Leanne's comment or phrase rather of a body of knowledge. You know, it goes back to what we were saying about those embodied metaphors that people use, but I never even thought about this one, a body of knowledge. So it's like, if perhaps some people haven't really understood this embodied cognition concept before, this is it. Your body is stored with so much knowledge, the accumulation of all of our experiences in the world that really form your decision-making and your actions. And then, you know, this is really those gut instincts, those emotional aspects. And Jane mentioned also those interoceptive markers. And so interoception is a concept which we love at the Kindness Studios. So interoception is effectively all of your internal body sensations. We talk a lot about touch and taste and smell, and those are all kind of these external sensations. But internally, we can feel our heartbeat. We can feel our stomach gurgling. We can feel the fact that we have to pee. We can feel that we're sexually aroused. And all of these things are inside of our bodies. And so the more that we can actually connect to those internal sensations, the more we can just be embodied. You know, you don't need to be moving to be embodied. It's about just being connected to what's happening inside. And actually, there's a lot of science that's beginning to show that the more interoceptively aware you are of yourself, the more actually you can tap into others. And I love this word. So this actually comes from a German word pronounced Einfühlung. I've never known how to pronounce it before. I have the phonetics in front of me at the moment to make it not screw up. But it means in feeling or feeling into. And so imagine you might be at an art gallery and you can really feel into the painting. That is that experience or the ability to feel into the person beside you or another person in the room. That is all a form of empathy. And so the more actually you can feel into your own self, the more you can feel into others, be more empathetic to them and exist in new relational ways. Absolutely agree. And I'm glad you brought up empathy. It's something we've talked about before in in previous shows. Um, But it's really, really important, especially right now. And a lot of empathy, you know, part of it is is actually about about the body and physical contact as well. You know, one thing we're all lacking right now is is human touch. And we know that when we touch someone, whether it's a, a handshake or a hug, you can produce chemicals in your body, things like oxytocin, which make you feel more connected. So touch is incredibly important in these interactions, as Jane discusses in a bit more detail with Contact Improv. I mean, I can talk about contact improvisation till the cows come home, because I actually think that this is one way that we can really understand ourselves in relation to other people, Um, because it was really developed as a response to conflict. And so when we think about how we relate, how we cooperate, how we share experiences, I think those are all very important ways that I see how we understand ourselves and even unconscious bias, unconscious decisions or categories that we've made are all taken away when you actually come to a place of non-verbal negotiation. How we as bodies, we are, we are simply bodies. We are not putting each other in categories. We're not giving each other labels. So all of those things that might differentiate us in terms of the other become less, become taken away, and we're stripped back to simply bodies that move in space. And then we come from a completely different angle towards each other. We don't come from 
a verbal understanding of who I am and who you are. We come from this very physical, very visceral experience, which I think gives us a very different way in to relating and understanding each other as well as ourselves. And that I think is is perfect, isn't it? It's it's what we've been discussing. We come from this very physical, visceral experience. That's how we understand each other. You know, it's it's not through, through necessarily talking to each other, which in this time, you know, it has been something as we talked about before in the pandemic. We've become very digitally connected, but it's not. You know, it's not as good as being in a room with someone. You know, we are isolated without that physical interaction. Of course, technology is is getting better at connecting us. And and more and more we will see with things like VR, this ability to have sort of almost physical interactions without the physical itself. But, you know, it's something that we're only just starting to explore. Exactly. And I mean, this really leads on to my my favorite question, uh, which I still don't have an answer for yet. Secretly wanted to do this episode to try and speak with other experts who might help me uncover an answer. But how do we get more people embodied? We know that a lot of people can't move their body, don't feel comfortable moving their body, think that they have to do it through yoga, through breath work. And ultimately, if that's not your thing, there's so many other ways of doing it. And so this exploration of technology to help us be embodied versus technology that takes us away from our bodies is really, really exciting. So Catherine, you've had a lot of experience in this. And do you think these digital versions of embodied experiences through artworks, through immersive experience can really help people uh, to get embodied oftentimes even with them even realizing it's happening in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a real part for technology to play in this, whether it's yeah, immersive experiences where, you know, through the engagement and immersion you feel, you suddenly become very present and aware of your own body to to watching dancers themselves or even VR experiences where you have to to inhabit a different body. You know, what amazes me is how readily our our minds can adapt to that. If you put someone in in a VR um, headset and you give them an avatar, a digital body that has a tail, within a matter of minutes, you become so used to that digital tail that as you move around, you will happily step over it without thinking. I wouldn't mind having a tail. (laughs) I would love to have a tail. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an amazing way for people who perhaps aren't used to moving their bodies or people through whatever reason, disability, accessibility, perhaps are, you know, not able to move their bodies as well. Um, I think there's a huge, huge place for this. And Leanne and Glessy walk us through a couple of examples. I think really important artists for me, thinking about this sort of interaction and, and touch area. Um, so Thekla Shiphorst and Susan Kazell, who were doing a lot of work in the in the 90s, sort of researching physical and philosophical vocabularies emerging from convergence between dance and digital tech. And a piece I experienced actually was a piece by Thekla called Body Maps. And this was an installation, and they say this is created over 25 years ago now, um, but an interactive touch table where sensors were placed within the table which detected touch and pressure. Projected onto the table was an image of of the artist and her son and audiences were invited to make contact, to connect with the the images, um, leaving a trace of their own hands and data behind. It was a very intimate experience and quite 
disturbing, I think, for lots of people because it was the very much that third space between you know, your object, what, what objectively you're seeing and then what subjectively you're feeling and how you experience that. Another installation, I think I mentioned a project called Whisper, and that was how we explore interaction with our own body data. So small sensors were placed within clothing um, and you and the, if the sensors were reading your own physiological data, so that was your heart rate and your breath data, and you were creating visualizations and sonifications. And the amazing thing with it actually was that you could also plug your sensors into somebody else's data. So between you, you could actually start to create these joint collective visualizations of your data. And I kind of look back and think, wow, you know, for 25, 30 years ago, this the stuff that was happening was incredible. And in some ways, we need to really keep some of those experiences at, at the fore. Well, I am supervising a, a multidisciplinary project whose aim is to challenge uh, fragility in old people. How? Through a combination of uh, technology, dance, and aesthetics. So basically, the idea is... Uh, with the help of art historians and choreographers, uh, have these elderly people facing original artworks uh, selected by the art historian and the choreographer. And the purpose of, of, of the participants is slowly to approximate uh, the, the bodily posture and movements that are portrayed by simultaneously receiving an haptic, proprioceptive, visual and auditory feedback that tells them how, how good they are in uh, approaching that final posture they are supposed to reach. These experiences that give us the ability to inhabit our bodies in ways we, we can't consciously access, you know, there's some incredible uh, VR experiences out there, for example, Through the Eyes of the Animal by Marshmallow Laser Feast, where you inhabit the body of different animals in the forest. And through that, you actually start to create an empathy for the natural world and, and how sort of connected we all are. There's incredible body swaps where you put on VR and you inhabit someone else's body. You know, if you're male, you inhabit a female body. If you're white, you can inhabit someone who's black. And what's amazing about those experiences is that by inhabiting somebody else's body it shows that you actually start to empathize with them more and it can actually reduce things like sexism and racism and it's not just just about empathy and understanding you know there's so much vr and and sort of digital research going on about sort of healing and health as leanne explains a bit more of the body presence sort of in vr is is usually mediated through your virtual self which is representing and reflecting our own our own physical body movements so how does it feel how does it feel like to control or be inside a body through and within a, an immersive virtual reality? Um, Kim Kings actually hosts a kind of world leading VR research lab in the Department of Psychology and developing treatment packages for people with established mental health disorders. So looking very much at, at using VR to understand the mechanisms which play a role in the onset maintenance, for example, of psychosis. You know, users and patients are actually entering scenarios of bringing those real-time life experiences into a lab environment. So participants would enter, for example, a virtual environment like a cafe populated by avatars who show behaviours which could be ambiguous. And 
any occurrence of a sort of paranoid behaviours or hallucinations triggered are, are assessed. Participants are also practising new social skills within these kind of environments. So as I said earlier, how to get more people embodied is, is really close to our heart. You know, Catherine has her own experience of, you know, living in her mind as a scientist and inhabiting her body for the first time, quitting her PhD and moving to drama school and the sharp turn of events. I, you know, grew up in my body dancing, but, you know, over the course of time, actually disconnected it. And so the path for us all to kind of come back to our bodies is, is a really personal journey. And I think one that a lot of people are on at the moment. And it's really interesting to see so many new technical innovations coming out to see how we can use this tech for good. And it's not just about this 2D, 3D divide, but it's about getting more people using tech in ways to experience the body. If there's one thing we want to really leave you with in today's episode, it's that we are a connected system. You know, if we think about well-being as human connection as we like to define it, we have to also remember that we are one connected system. Don't discount the importance of the body and the intelligence that lives there. You know, over the course of our lives, we accumulate so much lived experience. And as Leanne said, this becomes our own body of knowledge through our own lives. And so it's really the sense of presence within your own body that can do wonders for you. And there's multiple ways of doing that. You know, simply just noticing your heartbeat, taking a minute to just see how fast it's beating. You don't need to move to be embodied. And so this act of presence within yourself is something we'll talk about more next month in terms of digital presence and more things. But just remember, there's such small actions within your own body that can yield huge results for your own states of being. <laughs>